Father, as we come before You this morning, Lord, allow the things of this morning to fade into the distance. Allow the things of this afternoon to evaporate. Allow our minds to focus solely and exclusively on You. And Lord, we can say with confidence based on the Scripture, based on Your Word, based on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though our sins, they are many, Your mercy is more. Let us rest. Let us bask even in the light of the knowledge of forgiveness that You have taken the things in our lives and Lord, in Your Son, nailed them to the cross these many years ago and yet with an ever-present impact on us. We rejoice and thank You this morning for this. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I've mentioned this, I think I mentioned this about once a year, but I, th- I think it's such an important bit of understanding that I will mention it again. In, in 1940, the world was at war. And even though the United States wasn't a part of that war uh, yet, in June of that year, France fell. And Prime Minister Winston Churchill said to the House of Commons on the 18th, what General Wagon called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. And in July, the air battle for England indeed did begin. That campaign was concentrated on destroying as much property and killing as many people as necessary to get the government to sue for peace, an armistice or even an outright Surrender. Over the next year, the British government officially relocated three and one half million children from the cities to the countryside in an operation known as Operation Pied Piper. Those children were not allowed to return to their homes until June of 1945. A lifetime if you were a child. A lifetime if you were a mother. It had a major cultural impact on England. In fact, yesterday at the men's retreat, I spoke with a man whose mother was one of those children moved out of the city into the countryside. Impact with us even to this day. And it spawned a whole new genre of literature. That is... Uh, C.S. Lewis is the one that we most well know about this, a genre of literature that, that had child heroes go to very strange places and, and overcome insurmountable odds. Strange new worlds. And I'll tell you, a child from the city into the country, that was a world that they never knew existed. 
And the, the books were designed to meet the needs of, of those displaced children. And, and in fact, they did. One could argue easily that Aslan provided a great deal of comfort for children. But what about the parents? What about mom and what about dad? Out of this context, there arose another man to great prominence. He wasn't a children's writer, but he was a pediatrician. He was a pediatrician and a psychologist. And what happened was mothers began to come to him, first by the tens and then by the hundreds and ultimately by the thousands. They would come to him and they would say, even though it made no sense, you see, Emotion and reason were separate at this time in this thing because they would say, what kind of a mother would willingly abandon their child, in some cases, to absolute strangers? Well, they had no choice. This was not a decision that they made lightly or even one that they wanted to make. Nevertheless, this weighed on them. And so he determined to discover what it meant to answer these mother's questions. And that is, what did it mean to be a good enough mother? What, what was that? Could it be quantified? Could anything be said about it at all? And so he set about to discover this. And this man, Donald Winnicott, determined this. He concluded this. And what I'm going to say to you, I've said a couple times before, it probably didn't make sense then. It may not make sense now, but it's one of the most amazing statements that I have ever uh, read or heard. And it was that a mother is good enough if the child was able to play in the presence of the absent mother. <laughs> kind of a strange, sounds a little bit like gobbledygook, doesn't it? And yet, you have all witnessed it. In fact... We may have witnessed it this morning, some of you. I don't know, because I don't know if it happened or not. You may yet witness it this very day in some context. And that is that infants, somewhere around six months of age, they have determined in their mind that if the mama leaves, the mama is gone. And you, you've heard this, right? So you get the little child, you know, six to nine months, years old, maybe up to a year even. What will happen is, is the mama will leave the child and you can hear that kid from Dan to Beersheba screaming, hollering and yelling and going on and on and on. You mothers, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you do. Some of you fathers know as well. What happens then over time as the months go by, you can set the kid down, and if the mama's around, see, it's okay, the kid will be checking. The kid will play a little bit and then check over there, make sure the mama's there. You know, checking all the time. And then over time, you can, that'll, that'll go longer and longer until finally the mother can actually leave and the kid will keep on playing. What has happened at that point is the child has the ability, the capacity then to play in the presence of the absent mother. What that means is, is that the love, the care, the compassion, that which the mother or the caretaker 
gives to the child is now written on their hearts. I can play at peace because I know that I am loved and I know that I'm accepted. And what we find in Scripture, what we find in how God relates to us, is that it's a very similar thing. All you have to do, and some of you may actually be there at this very moment, is remember back to when you first came to Christ. You couldn't turn a page without the Lord doing something amazing in your life. Every time you turned around, He was there. Whether it was a Scripture verse or a phone call or whatever it might be, it wouldn't even matter. The Lord was ever present, immediate with you all the time. And then what happens is, after a little while, you start not to sense that all the time and you start getting a little panicky. And so like the little baby, you, you cry and you holler and, and, and sure enough, sooner or later, the Lord will come and He'll, he'll do something for you. He'll, he'll soothe your heart. He'll soothe your heart. The further you go along, what will end up happening is that the Lord will write His love on your heart so that whether He is present with you in a way, He's always present with you, but in a way that you want Him to be, in an amazing and a, in a spectacular kind of a way in your heart, it doesn't matter anymore. You're able to live and move and go on being because the love of Christ has been written on your heart. Turn with me to 1 John 4. We're going to look at just a, a, a few verses here. John, 1 John 4, 19 through 21. In 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we read this. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, not, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We have to understand the context of 1 John, so I'm just going to kind of summarize that so that we'll have an understanding of what John is doing here, what he's writing about. The church that he was writing to, this, the, the entire uh, church at that point was being impacted by this, especially Ephesus, where he was, in fact, uh, pastoring the church there. It was being drawn into this thing called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a system of belief that was characterized by you have this one supreme being, certainly not in any way the Trinity, it would be a singularity. And so you have that, and from that comes these what are called uh, demiurges. They are uh, like lesser and lesser angelic beings. The primary one being the chief Demiurge, who they would have said was Christ. A Demiurge, I mean, that sounds like a strange thing. Demi, like Demi Moore and Urge, like we have an Urge. It doesn't mean any of those things. It, it, it actually means artisan, craftsman. Uh, it means one who forms the clay is a, a Demiurge. And so 
Christ in their thinking. Yes, Christ did that, but Christ was not God. Christ was not deity. Christ was simply a, uh, an emanation from uh, God. And so they didn't think in terms of sin because of that. What they thought of was in terms of ignorance. And part of the reason for that is they believed that all matter, because it was not created by God, it was created by this demiurge, it was all evil. Because only God, only Spirit, only the Spirit of God could be uh, good. So you have to understand the implications of this. So... If matter is evil, think about it. If matter is evil... Now, what are we doing? We're taking the quality of something, like this pulpit, and we're applying a moral understanding about it. So this pulpit, because it is matter, is also evil. You, because you are matter, are also evil. Therefore, you cannot do good. Period. So, sin no longer is an issue. Because it doesn't matter what you do in the body. At all. Because it's all evil anyway. So, whether you help somebody or don't help somebody, whether you cheat somebody or don't cheat somebody, whether you're faithful to your spouse or unfaithful doesn't make any difference. And John is like going crazy with this. This is destroying the church. You've got to understand, these are all second and even third generation Christians here. And John, he's, you know, in John 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen, we have handled. John is going right back to the first, where he's saying, You know what? I'm an eyewitness to this. You need to understand what I'm saying is, in fact, true. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when he wrote to uh, Ephesus in particular, he said, what? What was God's difficulty with them? You have left your first love. Well, who was the second love? It was this Gnostic business. And so John brings up three themes over and over again. You see this in his book as well. Uh, Not for the same reasons, but it's just something that he was really steeped in. And that was truth obedience, and love. First, truth. So the the Gnostics denied not only Christ's deity, but they also denied His humanity. He was this demiurge. He wasn't God. He wasn't man. He was this high-level angelic being. And that was and remains a heresy. Because there are certain things about Jesus Christ Having come to know Him, the first time you hear them, you'll believe them. Because it simply makes sense. When you are instructed that Jesus Christ is a deity, you go, sure He is, of course. It's a natural thing. It resonates true with you. And when, they, when you hear that Jesus Christ was truly man, the same thing occurs. 
You simply know the truth when you hear the truth because the Spirit of God is inside of you sorting this stuff out and telling you what the truth is and is not. Gnostics didn't have that because they didn't believe. And so consequently they could believe some fairly outlandish things. The second issue John addressed was obedience. Now, this is seen in his use of the term walk. So walk simply means living, walking, how you move around in life in obedience to Christ. And now the Gnostics, of course, because this notion of uh, evil material, that was uh, not, not an issue. Uh, the body, by definition, was, was evil. And John says, no, you're, it's not evil. In fact, your life can be good and it's marked by light. Uh, one of my, uh, I used to love to listen to uh, J. Vernon McGee. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He hasn't been on the radio in some time. Uh, maybe he gets some reruns somewhere. But he shares this story about how he was in Tennessee and he'd finished a series and uh, uh, one of the members of the congregation who was a doctor invited him out to go squirrel hunting. Would you like to go squirrel hunting with me? And he says, there's no place that I'd rather be. So they went out and he got his little shotgun and off they went. And so they were, uh, they were out squirrel hunting and he was delighted. But there was a little bit of a cloud cover and it drizzled on him a couple times. And so... They, they felt like they could do uh, better, cover more ground if uh, around this hill that ended up on the other side of the hill was uh, this uh, doctor's barn that they split up. So he took the trail to the left, the doctor took the trail to the right, and pretty much about five minutes later, it starts pouring rain. So now it's raining, and so he's looking up on the side of this hill, and he sees that there are a number of little uh, little caves up there. So he goes into the biggest one and he sits down there and he's just watching the rain dry, you know, happy as a pig in slop, as we used to say in Georgia. And, uh, and then he uh, started getting a little bit cold. So he gathered some branches together and some leaves together and he lit himself a little fire. And when he lit the fire, of course, the light came from the fire, so he could see his surroundings. And he, he quickly discovered, as Ray Stevens would say, there's something among us. <laughs> he said there was so many spiders and there was so many lizards, and over in the corner, he said, just looking at him, eyeballing him, was a curled up snake. And he says, <laughs> I wish I can't even do his accent, but he said, well, I'll tell you, I got out of that cave as soon as I could. <laughs> He had sat there in the darkness for 30 minutes in perfect comfort until the light came on. Isn't that the way in our lives? Isn't that the way it works? You know, when it's dark, you can't see those dangers and you just feel fine. You could be in real danger and yet we don't see it and we're unaware of the danger. And that light uh, caused obedience in McGee. It also caused obedience in me. Once I had the light turned on and I could see, oh my, 
Whatever God stands for, I am not there with Him. And I needed a Savior. I needed salvation. And I came to Jesus Christ. That's the light. And I want you to understand this. What did He do when the light turned on? He got up out of the cave and into the rain. In other words, it caused Him to do something. I fear for the church today, and I'm not talking about this local body. I'm talking about the church at large where we have traded the light that causes action for the light that just gets stored in the brain. Oh yeah, I know that. I know. Have you ever talked to somebody? Yeah, 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 I know that. I know that. I know that. I know that. Well, I guess I can't tell you anything. Does that have any impact on your life? What do you mean? Okay, that answers my question. We've turned it into a head light, head knowledge, when it needs to be a light that causes us to action. Finally, we come to this uh, third characteristic. <laughs> we will end on time, but I haven't got to the text yet. This is all background information. Anyway, in the most important one that he emphasizes, and that is love. Now, you realize we've been looking at loving God and loving one another for an entire year now. The whole year, that's what everything, every uh, sermon that we've been preaching has been about. And we only have one more. Now, that's, of course, is a part of the series. I don't think you can preach the Word of God without preaching the love of God. I don't think it's possible. But we're going to start a delightful series uh, as we move in this season, many Christians know as Advent towards Christmas, we're going we're to look a little bit in Isaiah. But John tells us here that if we don't love believers, then we're not in fellowship with God or others for that matter. It's vital. Love is vital, but why? It tells us in the text, we love because He first loved us. That's a very interesting statement because in the original, in some of your versions will say we love Him. Some of your versions will say we love others. But the truth is, in the original text, that's not there. There's no direct object. It just says we love. We love because God, because He first loved us. I think myself, personally, that it's the very capacity to love that's in view here. I'm not talking about uh, certain kinds of love, which I'll mention in a minute. I'm talking about the kind of love that is the love that's given to us uh, by God because He first loved us. You know, uh, Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners he died for us he loved us and he loved us first now, i don't remember i don't remember the date i don't remember the hour um, that i fell in love with each of my children but i do remember the moment uh, and it was pretty much the same for all of them it's kind of interesting you know because i fell in love with them respectively 77 79 and 81 and 
the thought of having a child was something that was a beautiful thing for me. It, it was something that, that, that stirred uh, uh, my heart. But when my hand felt the kick, you know, it became very real. And that's, you know, and you start really, at, at, for me anyway, at that point, falling in, in, in love. There's no longer simply a thought or dreams or a notion. There's a real baby there. And I'm going to, I love this, I'm going to love this baby. When they were born, of course, I was like totally hooked uh, from that day to, to this day. In a very real way, I love the thought of them, the in utero of them, the birth of them, and their continuing life. And point is this, I don't know how long they've loved me, but I've loved them before they knew I existed. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how long has God loved you? Do you know that the Bible answers that question? The Bible in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says this, Blessed or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. First, before the foundation of the world, He loved you. He loved you before you knew He existed. And this kind of first is beyond the way that we use first most of the time. I mean, there's a number of football games today. Uh, somebody's going to come in first. All right? Somebody's going to win. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, it's not the first one to, to know something. It's not that, that kind of first. Uh, the reason for that is he did not look and determine who was lovable that he would choose. Oh, that one's going to be lovable? Ah! I want that one. No. That's not the way God did this. God loved us. Much of that's a mystery, but I know it wasn't based on our lovability because Romans, again, we just said it. While we were unlovable, could I say it that way? While we were in sin, Christ died for us. The first love that God has for us because He loves us, that produces our very ability to love one another. Now, love is a part of the Imago Deo. Love is something that we, that we have. Every human being has the capacity for certain kinds of love. As you have probably guessed now, I'm talking about this special kind of love is agape love. I mean, the New Testament writers, they went out, they picked a little unknown word 
and they invested it with all of this meaning about the love of God. Hesed is actually the best Hebrew word to bring up. This loyal, loving kindness that never ends. But we all have the capacity to phileo, to love, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. We all have this capacity to love one another. Storge, you've never heard that one before. That's a family love. That's the kind of love that you have for brothers and sisters and and aunts and uncles and moms and dads. That's the kind of love. The Greek language has this word for that. And then there's that eros love, which gets a bad rap today because the only way we use that word in English is in words like erotic or something like that, when the fact is it just simply meant the desire to possess something, like, like a, a parcel of land or, or a work of art or something along those lines. It also has those other connotations as well. But we all have that capacity. We were born with it. It's part of the imago Deo being created in the image of God. But that's not what John is talking about here. John is talking about agape love, this unselfish, loyal, loving kindness that is inexplicable. We cannot explain it. And if anyone says, I love God, I agape God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if I say I love God, but I don't love my brother, I'm a liar. Why is that? Because I'm intentionally asserting something that's contrary to fact. And I want to explain something too. Because what most of the time in our, in our minds we're trying to determine, well, do I love somebody or do I not love somebody? Uh, do I dislike somebody? Is that hate? Is that disgust? Is that whatever? And we're trying to level all this stuff out and trying to figure out what it is. And okay, there is a certain place where that kind of reflection is good. But what is agape love? It's what you do. It's what you do. You don't know. You, you can't look into my heart to see whether I have agape love in there or not. What can you do? What kind of actions do I take? Do, do I act in a loving way to people, to others? Is there compassion there? Is there concern? And so what you understand is that this agape love is not necessarily, I believe that it can have, but it's not a feeling. It's doing best for the other person. And sometimes that's discipline. Sometimes that's doing hard things. What we have here is this notion of you do not love what you can see. You cannot love what you don't see. This is how this ties back to the child playing in the presence of the absent mother. Over time, as the Spirit of Christ works in us, as the Holy Spirit drives us, we understand that we can love others constantly in our way of walking in the light. 
This takes us to the principal truth that Jesus, the gospel writers, Peter, uh, Paul, James, and John argue here. Who we are in Christ, in right being that is, is not based on what we do. That's the way we operate, but that's not what it's based on. It's based on who we are. Let's look at it just a little bit closer. For example, so in soul care, when we're tending to the wounds of another person, when or the harms that, that we've actually done uh, to another, how do we handle that uh, biblically? One way is to say, you know, you're, that, was, that was sin, you're a sinner, that's idolatry, you need to repent because you're stubborn, you're willfully disobedient, and uh, you need to get right with God through repentance. So the person looks at the passage and says, ah, this is a test of my salvation. If I love others, then that is evidence that I love God. And the implication of that thinking taken as a whole is this. If I do what's right, I'll be okay with God. Now, I'm not completely arguing against that position. Not, there's a lot of good uh, truth there. But I think there is a higher way. I think there is a better way. Because in that unstated goal, and this is what the unstated goal of that position is, if you pursue love with the expectation that you will be loved by God in return, that's bad theology. You know, you, you can't do anything, nothing, to make God love you more than He already does. Not one thing. You do not express love to others in order to be loved by God. You express love to others because you are loved by God. So a more biblical way to understand this is that God created us as a being who participates in doing. So we are a being who does. We don't do in order to become that being. We do because who we are and who are we in Christ. I'm just going to read a few things about who you are. I want you to to listen, to reflect on these things. You are loved. You are accepted. You are a child of God. You are a friend of Jesus. You are a joint heir with Him. You are free from condemnation. You are a new creation. You are established, anointed, and sealed by God. I have references for all of these. You are God's co-worker. You're united with God and one spirit with Him. You are a temple for the Holy Spirit. You are a member of Christ's body. You are a saint. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ, with direct access to God. You are redeemed and forgiven, complete, chosen, holy, and dearly loved. How is that different from the first position that I mentioned? 
The difference is that instead of focusing on your sin, and I'm not trying to soft-pedal sin, I am fully aware of man's inhumanity to man. I am fully aware of our capacity to sin. But what I'm saying is that if you focus on sin, your heart and your mind is going to be surrounded on sin as opposed to if you focus on who you are in Christ, then you're going to focus on Christ. Was not this made abundantly clear last week? with Chris Maddox's presentation of the prodigal son. The son was the son because he was the son. Now, I'm sure that father was a really nice man. I'm sure he was a compassionate man. And I'm sure if I showed up ragtag smelling a pig manure and I asked him for a job, he'd give me one. He would have compassion on me. He may even give me a place to sleep and a place to live, but he would not give me a ring and he's not going to give me the fatted calf. Why? Because I'm not his son. Do you understand how important this is to understand? It's who you are in Christ that makes you who you are, not what you do. We should do. We should do a great deal, but that doing should be coming out of a place of being, not in order for God to love us, to accept us. Not at all. Paul wrote to Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this, Do not waste your time. C.S. Lewis considered this a waste. Do not waste your time on whether you love your neighbor or not. Act as if you do. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets of the Christian life. When you behave as if you love someone, you find yourself falling in love with them. (laughs) In Luke, Jesus wonders aloud if the Son of Man will find faith upon His return to the earth. Truth is, our world is losing the ability to love in any kind of meaningful way. Love, according to Paul, is far deeper and real and more enduring. It's more alive than any theology or sacrifice, even religious gift. If love is absent, I want to say this. Faith is also absence because, absent because I'm convinced that what Jesus is looking for when He returns, when He says faith, is that He will find not some kind of distilled, rarefied, ratified theology from some seminary or not. What He will find is full and durable faith. And that is love in action.
available to any of us who know Him through Him. Father, we are so grateful that this amazing love that You have for us cannot be described ultimately. It cannot be understood ultimately. But but Father, You have made it so that we can enter into its experience. And Lord, to the degree that we have Your love in us, allow that love to shine, especially to brothers and sisters in the same family, family of God. So we look forward this week to opportunities where we can manifest those expressions of love in ways that bring you glory and honor do your name. Thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.